I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one, or to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Please join me in prayer. We are thankful, Father, to be those whom you have called through your Son to be your children. You've justified us, as we have just sung about in all these songs. You've justified us by his blood through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast before you. Would you open our eyes to your word this morning as we hear it read and as it is preached? Lord, teach us. Make Christ great in our eyes. May he be exalted and glorified among us as we hear and obey your word this morning. Amen. very common in the church today to refer to men who serve the Lord in pastoral ministry full-time as, it's, it's common to refer to them as called into ministry, or men and women who serve in the mission field as those who are called into that kind of ministry. And that's an appropriate phrase. It's a biblical phrase. Scripture does speak of 
some people being called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do certain kinds of work that not everyone is called to. But what can happen if we're not careful is that we can draw too sharp of a distinction between those who are called into ministry and those who are not. We can adopt a way of thinking that is very unbiblical, a way of thinking that makes in our minds two separate classes of Christians, the normal Christians and the ministers. We can tend to draw much too stark of a distinction between, there, between them, whereas the passage that we just heard as our brother Gunnar read it for us makes very clear that by the grace of Jesus Christ, every Christian plays a role in biblical ministry. By the grace of Jesus Christ, every Christian has a role to play in the ministry of the church. Or we could say, Christ has made every saint a minister. But before we get into the, today's text, I want to back up a little because we're jumping into a flow of thought. Uh, many of you know Ephesians is a letter, and so we can't just cherry pick without setting some context what we want to talk about. Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And in the first three chapters, what Paul has been doing is expounding the glories of the gospel of grace. The book of Ephesians is about Christ and the people Christ has called to himself. We could say that the message of Ephesians is about the calling and the conduct of Christ's church, or how, what the, how, how, a, how a church should live and behave in light of their glorious calling to salvation. This is perhaps summed up the best in a, some verses with which you are, many of you are familiar, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul has been emphasizing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We owe our entire salvation to God's grace. Not a bit of it belongs to us. Not a bit of the credit from beginning to end. Paul explains too then in chapter 2 how because of that, barriers have come down between Jew and Gentile. They are one people. In Christ. Everyone has been reconciled to God. Everyone who is saved is reconciled to God by one man, Jesus Christ. And that levels the playing field, so to speak, in God's sight. God is making one new people where there were two before. There was Jew and Gentile. And he ends, this, he ends chapter 2 with this beautiful statement about the church that Christ is calling to himself. Verse 22 of chapter 2. He says, In him, that is Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God. Brothers and sisters, the church and what we do in the church, there's nothing hum-ho about it. This is marvelous. It's a marvelous work that Christ is doing in the church. In the church universal and in churches individually, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Let's not lose sight of that. So this idea of oneness and of unity as a building, a dwelling place for God, is still in Paul's mind when he opens chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, live out the calling you've received, the call to belong to Christ. Live that out. 
How do we do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then he ends with this beautiful statement, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in these first verses of chapter 4, Paul is telling the Ephesian church that they have a remarkable unity, an inseparable unity as the body of Christ. They are one with every other member of the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity. One people. Remarkable unity because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in, in them individually. And therefore, they are to reflect that unity that oneness in their life together with things like humility, gentleness, patience, love, bearing with one another. Brothers and sisters, our calling, our calling to Jesus Christ requires us to live with others in the church, striving for unity always in all things. But that's not where Paul stops, and that's not where our focus is this morning. When we come to verse 7, we see a but. That's why you can't, my text for this morning starts in verse 7, but I couldn't start there because it starts with a, a but. We have to understand the context. So even after that beautiful statement of unity in the body of Christ, that's not the end of the story. There's more Paul wants to say. There's more to fill out the picture of what we are called to as Christians. And that is that even though there is unity in the body of Christ, there is not uniformity in the body of Christ. Even though there is unity, which is marked by love, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, there exist differences. And that's on purpose. We find as we read through this passage that Christ made these differences. Christ made these differences on purpose because the differences among church members are meant to benefit one another. The differences among church members are meant to benefit one another. Again, like I said earlier, by the grace of Jesus Christ, every Christian has a role to play in the ministry of the church. And that's what this passage is about. The biblical ministry of the church and the role of different Christians within it. There are five main truths that I want to highlight this morning that will help us understand this larger point that every saint is a minister. Five truths. Here's the first one. Our victorious king has given us gifts. Our victorious king has given us gifts. Let's read verse 7 again. But, again, just highlighting that but, despite the unity, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now let's make sure we understand this. Grace here, in this context, is not referring to the grace of salvation. In other words, the grace of salvation is not given in varied amounts. To different people. If you read the context, grace is clearly here the ability to serve Christ with special gifts and serve the body of Christ with special gifts to build up Christ's church. And what Paul says is that Jesus Christ has personally given, personally given to each one of us, us, those who are in him, he's given to each one of us gifts, grace to serve. That is, all Christians, young and old, new and not as new, seasoned 
educated and not, every Christian has been given grace personally by Jesus Christ as he chose. By his wisdom, he's given all his people grace to serve, but not in the same ways. And this means, brothers and sisters, that we should never underestimate our gift, and we should never overestimate our gift. We should never underestimate the gift of a brother or sister, and we should never overestimate the gift of a brother and sister, because Christ, by his wisdom, is who gave those gifts. And so we should be able to fully appreciate and celebrate how Christ uses us and others in a beautiful oneness in his church. Now then, verses 8 through 10 connect these spiritual gifts that Christ has given with his victorious conquering of his enemies. Let's read those verses again, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, now he's quoting Psalm Psalm 68 here, verse 18. He says, When he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul is pointing to this Old Testament passage and how it's been fulfilled in Christ. And he actually changes it a little bit. If you go back and read Psalm 68, 18, I don't have time to get into that. But here's his purpose. Jesus descended to earth to live and to die for sinners. But when he rose again from the dead, he was victorious then. He conquered every single one of his enemies there in an ultimate sense. He won the victory over death, sin, and hell. And he rose and ascended to the right hand of God the Father as a conquering king. And now Paul quotes from Psalm 68 here to show how the gifts that he gives are, are it's an image of when a, when a, when a conqueror would, would come and present the spoils that he won, he would receive gifts from men. And that's what Psalm 68, 18 actually says. He received gifts from men. But now Paul extends the metaphor and he says, but of that spoil that Christ won in his victory, he now distributes that among his people. He has the right to give these gifts to pour out the Spirit upon us. And just by a little way of encouragement on this point, it's an encouragement to remember that the source of our gifts for ministry, brothers and sisters, come from Christ's victory. They're on purpose. They have a purpose. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what he said before he went back into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what's that authority? What's he doing with that authority? He's building his church and he's spreading his kingdom worldwide. And your gifts, brothers and sisters, are to be part of that spread of the kingdom. Truth number two. Some are gifted to better equip the rest. Some are gifted to better equip the rest. Now remember, in the wider context, Paul is talking about each one of us. In verse 7, he said, grace was given to each one of us. But now in verse 11, he focuses on the leaders of the church, and it says that Christ gave them. In other words, they are the gifts to the church. They are some of his gifts to the church. He says, let's read verses 11 and 12. And remember, it says, and he gave. We have to connect that back to what he's talking about. So go back before the parentheses, and at the end of verse 8, it says that he gave gifts to men. Now we come back to verse 11. It says, he gave the apostles. 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And here's why. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So truth number two is some are gifted to better equip the rest. Now, it's not my detail, it's not my goal today. I I chose a, a fairly large chunk of scripture, so I can't go into every single detail. It's not my goal to unpack the fullness of all of these terms, all of these various gifts. That's for another time. But I'll summarize by saying these are the men who were and are called to special places of leadership in the church that Christ is building. There were the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Christ and wrote down the scriptures. There were the prophets of Paul's day who declared the word of the Lord. There were evangelists. There are two people, named, two people who were called evangelists in the New Testament, Timothy and Philip. That's the only two places it's used. But these would be people that go from place to place and spread the gospel. They have a, they have a gift for that carrying the good news of Christ from place to place. And then we get to the pastors and teachers, and this is, this is the one that is made very abundantly clear in Scripture. Whatever you might say about those, this is the one that every church has as we look through the New Testament, the shepherds and teachers. Now, it's best to understand this as referring to the same position, the elders, the pastors, the teachers. And the reason for that is that in Greek, the construction here is different than the rest that were just listed, and they're mushed together pastor teachers, we might call them. They're the shepherds of the local churches. And Paul writes here that all of these men are Christ's gift to his church, given with a special purpose. And that is, getting back to verse 12, that purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Brothers and sisters, that's my job. That's Tim's job, is to equip you for ministry. We aren't gifted by Christ to do all the work of ministry. We'd be in a sad place if that was true. Well, I guess if we were gifted that we wouldn't be in a sad place, but that's that's not the goal, is that we do all the ministry in the church. It's to equip all of us to do a shared ministry, to help you develop your gifts to serve the church. You who have grace given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Whether it feels like it or not, it's there. And it should be used to build up the body of Christ. Let me ask you, do you pray for us? I know most of you do. I know many of you do. And I, I know that. I feel that. You tell me that. And that's encouraging. But do you pray for us, the pastor teachers of this church? When you pray, pray that we will excel in this ministry. That we will excel in equipping you for ministry. Pray for our humility so that we'll not be so prideful as to think it's our ministry, but to remember that it's our ministry, collectively. And therefore, that we will, as Paul and the rest of the apostles, regard ourselves as mere servants of Christ for your sake. And that we'll humbly serve you by helping you to serve Christ and one another. That brings us to truth number three. The work of ministry is our work. Capitalize our. Let's read verse 12 yet again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, it never hurts to remind ourselves that what Scripture means by saints, because that's so misunderstood in popular Christianity. 
today. Saints doesn't refer to a special class of Christians venerated by others. Saints literally means holy ones. And it's talking about you if you belong to Christ. Those that Christ has made holy by washing with his blood. Saints is every Christian of every stripe. It's the same group as each of us in verse 7. Each of us who has received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift to build up the body. Those of us who have received that grace are to join in the ministry because the work of ministry is our work. As a saint, your job is not to simply come and receive. Now, hopefully you are coming and receiving, and there is that. Receiving spiritual good from the leaders of the church and from your brothers and sisters in the church. Hopefully that's happening. But according to this passage, you are poured into by us so that you will be equipped to join us in the ministry. So the question each of us needs to consider is this. It isn't whether I should give my life to the ministry, but where and how. It isn't whether I should give my life to the ministry, but where and how I should. And obviously, not everyone is going to go into it full time, as they say. But if you are called to Christ, you're called to his church, and you're called to serve his church with your gifts. So, what is the work of ministry? I've been using that term, and I've purposefully not been defining it because God's word defines it for us right here. What is the work of ministry that each and every one of us is called to? That's what that second phrase is in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. That's the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, and then he clarifies, for the building up of the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus himself said, I, this is important, brothers and sisters, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How is Jesus building his church? Through the work of ministry. He's building up the body of Christ through saints. He doesn't have some switchboard where he magically flips switches and builds his church. He gifted his church, each member of his church, with gifts for the work of ministry. And that's how the church is built. Building, strengthening, edifying the church. When, when you think about your relationship to the church, brothers and sisters, do you think in these terms? Do you think in these terms? Do you, that you've been gifted not just to feed yourself spiritually from the word, though that's where it starts. You need to be able to come to the word and, and feed yourself and, and nourish yourself from the word. Your family, especially husbands, dads, lead your family to serve Christ. Those are important, but that's not the end. You've been gifted not to serve just yourself, your family, but your church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you're bound to Christ, you're bound to his people. You get the whole package. And each one of us is to enter into that work in various ways because we have various gifts with one specific purpose, to build up his body. And this is why I'm so encouraged when, when people come to me and say, how can I get involved? How can I serve? Because what that shows is a healthy understanding that we together are responsible for the work of ministry. It's our work. 
Truth number four. The goal of ministry is maturity in Christ. We need to make sure that we're not just, that we're, we're very clear on what we're talking about when we're talking about ministry. And here we have the goal in verses 13 and 14. The goal, what's, why do we use our gifts for building up the body of Christ? Well, notice the word in, at, that begins verse 13, until. So in other words, this is what we're straining for. This is what we're seeking to attain. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We've got a ways to go. This is a never-ending work until we are in glory with Christ. Let me, let me start it back. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." What these two verses describe is growth and maturity in Christ. And it's described in four ways. Let's go, go through those quickly. First, Paul says, until we attain to the unity of the faith. Now, what does that mean? Unity of the faith. Well, again, Paul is hitting on this theme of unity. It's a, it's a big theme in this letter. But what we find here is that he makes clear again that this unity isn't just some kind of ungrounded, nice, kumbaya feelings towards one another. A spirit of tolerance and acceptance. Instead, our unity is the unity of faith. It's based on the faith. That's just a, a shorthand way of saying the central doctrines of what we believe about Christ. The faith, like the Apostle Jude says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that just earlier in this, in this uh, chapter, Paul said in verse 5, one, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's not talking about the subjective experience of believing. That's talking about the faith we share, the truths about God as revealed in his word, the unity of the faith. So maturity in Christ is described as a greater understanding and adherence to the truth of God's word. Or we could say a growth in theological understanding of doctrines and truths. And as we achieve that, we will be more unified. But lest we misunderstand him, Paul then gives us a second mark of maturity, and he says the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity is applied to both of those, the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul is saying, we know and hold fast to the truth of God's word, the doctrine, we want to be growing in theological understanding, in order to know Christ better, deeper. The goal of doctrine is to teach us to know and love and serve Christ. If it's not achieving that end, we do not know what we think we know. Brothers and sisters, our maturity as a church and your maturity as a saint is marked by how well you know Jesus Christ and what you know about Jesus Christ. Is it biblical? Peter's prayer, and this is, a, this is a prayer. If you want to look through the scriptures and find prayers that you can apply to just about anybody, any Christian and every Christian, here's a good one. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow, increase in the knowledge, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 
Paul goes on. He says a third thing. Uh, spiritual growth and maturity is like reaching mature manhood. That's what he says next, mature manhood. Here he's building on the metaphor of the body. A man, as opposed to a child, is strong in mind and in body. The more we gaze upon Christ as he's revealed to us in his word, the more we love him, the more we learn about him, the more we know him intimately, the more confident we become in him, the more firm of a stance we will take in defending his truth. The more we obey him, the more we begin to look like him, the more we desire him. And the more we know him, the more his loves and the things that he prioritizes become ours and we share them. Like, we'll love his church and we will join him and play our part in building his church, building up his church, edifying his church, rather than focusing on whatever worldly goals we might have in this life. It's a matter of priority. As we know Christ better, we will love Christ better, and then we will prioritize Christ and his priorities more. So mature manhood. And then there's one final thing Paul says, and it's related to that. He says, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, that's a lot of ofs. But basically, the goal of biblical ministry is nothing short of Christ-likeness. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's the goal. Looking like, acting like, sounding like Jesus, that's the aim of every believer, isn't it? And that's the aim of our ministry, to present everyone mature in Christ, Paul writes in another spot. It's the aim of every biblical pastor, that Christ be formed in each one of us. We're simply servants of Christ to bring each of his children to him, regularly reminding them to come to him, helping them to love and obey him in order that they might look like him to his glory. I'm not going to spend a lot of our time on verse 14, but it basically tells us the opposite of that, the opposite of Christian maturity. What's going to happen if you don't strive for this is verse 14, so that we may no longer be children Again, contrasted with mature manhood. We may no longer be children. And what are children like? They're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We're to avoid remaining spiritually ignorant, theologically ignorant. We're to be growing. Because being ungrounded theologically and immature in one's knowledge of Christ is dangerous both to you and to the church. Because there are Deceitful schemes that abound, that just want to pull us away from Christ. Gradually at first, but it's a, you just have to get us off on the, a little bit off the, off the beaten track, and we'll end up in destruction. But there's a lot of false teachings out there vying for your mind, and the better you know Scripture and the God of the Scripture, the Christ of the Scripture, and the more you love Him, the more you will be guarded from that. And the more you will help to guard His church from that. One final truth I want to leave you with from this passage is the means of ministry. In other words, Paul's been building to something, and now we've been talking about, we've been talking about how, how it's our work, we've received gifts for it, we've, re we've even heard about the goal of it, what's the goal? How do we do it? That should be the question that's burning on our minds. How do we do it? The means of ministry is the speaking of the truth in love. That's it. Let's read verses 15 and 16. 
Rather, in other words, to avoid being children, remaining as children in our knowledge of Christ, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, Paul's talking about the body metaphor. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in verse 15, Paul gives us the goal of ministry. We are to grow up in every way into the head. This is just restating what he already said in verse 13. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So in this metaphor of the body that Paul has been using, Christ is the head. That is, he is the source. He is the command center. He is the life source of this body that we are building. And as we grow, we are to grow up into him and by him. Now, this is a profound truth that we are, as those who belong to Christ, we are connected to him spiritually and we draw life from him. That's a profound truth. Jesus, by his power, by his headship, is causing his church to grow. He's building his church. And you and, my, you and me might expect that the means that he's doing that by would be somehow far beyond our understanding, our, means to, our, our ability to comprehend mysterious, divine, and, and he's just, he's doing it. But we don't really know how. And it's true in a sense that it is in a way beyond our ability to comprehend how he does it. But he tells us what we need to know. And he tells us how we are to join him in building his church. And it's not complicated. He tells us our part. Remember, This work of ministry is our work. Christ is building his church, but he's doing it through us. And so he gives us all that we need right here. Here it is again, in case we missed it. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. This is the heart of all biblical ministry. If this is not the heart of a ministry, it is not biblical. We have different gifts different ways we serve, different ways this will be expressed. But at the heart, all of it involves this. This is the one lifeblood that must flow through all of our ministry in order to be true biblical ministry. It must be infused with speaking of the truth in love. Notice three things about this. We're going to look at speaking the truth in love. First, the work of ministry involves speaking. The work of ministry involves speaking. Sometimes we we can think... Well, I have gift of helps. And that might be true. That is a gift. But it should involve speaking. It is inherently a ministry of words. Biblical ministry is. God has communicated the knowledge of himself to us through words. The knowledge, he has communicated to us the knowledge of ourselves through words. The knowledge of our fall and our and, and our sin and our, then our redemption through Christ, the knowledge of how to live in the light of the gospel, the knowledge of our hope we have in him, that's all communicated to us through very specific truth in words. It comes to us in words and therefore, how could we think that the work that Christ is doing could be done in any other way than through words? Speaking. The speaking can happen in a variety of contexts. Some are called to preach and to teach the word but most aren't. Some are given gifts to have a biblical counseling ministry, but most aren't in an official sense. 
Most people are going to serve and minister in private one-on-one settings or one-on-two settings. Coffee with a friend, helping someone in need. But whatever gifts you have, what abilities you have to serve are to be serving a particular end, which is to speak the truth to one another in love. Speaking. Notice, secondly, it's not just speaking about anything, because there's a lot of advice we could give, and there's a lot of advice we could receive and do receive that's not biblical, that's not really any help at all. It's speaking the truth. Remember, remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, before he went to the cross? He prayed something for believers. He prayed, sanctify them, that is, make them holy in the truth. And then what did he say? Your word is truth. This is how we know truth. We don't know truth any other way. And therefore, this is what we need to be speaking. We don't need the latest philosophy. We don't need the latest psychological jargon. We need this, the one thing that we need. Brothers and sisters, do we really believe that God's word contains all that we need for life and godliness, like it says? Do we really believe that? All that we need. Do we believe that the answers to all of our, all of our most basic problems is found here? Do we believe that? And not only that it has something to say, but it has the most important thing to say to every single situation that you face. In short... Do we really believe what we say we believe, that Scripture is our only infallible rule of faith and practice? Only infallible, that is, can't fail, rule of faith and practice. Is it sufficient for all things, or is it not? It is, and therefore we are to speak the truth. And brothers and sisters, this this book is what we are to be growing in the knowledge of, not just to help ourselves grow, but to help others grow. If we are going to have a seasonable word to speak, to give grace to those who hear, as Paul will talk about a few verses later in verse 29. By the way, I'll just read that right now. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. In other words, talk that tears down. So he's still on this same image of building up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. It's our duty to speak the truth to one another. When, someone, when our friend, when our brother or sister is believing a lie and they don't know they are, what's going to cure that but speaking the truth? And how are we going to have any objective source of truth if not from God's word? And that's because in God's word, we know Christ, our head. We come to know his grace and his love for sinners. We come to know his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. And as we know the gospel, our hearts then are warmed by his love and we begin to love what he loves, his church. And we begin to love his church so that we will give ourselves and we will care about our brother or sister who's struggling with X, Y, or Z and we want to know how to help them. So we care about his people because he cares about his people. Finally, that leads into the third ingredient. We are to speak the truth in love. So we speak the truth out of a desire to help others, to serve others, not to serve ourselves. 
and our purposes, not to puff ourselves up. So tempering what we say with love, that is a care for other people, a desire to do them spiritual good, tempering what we say with love will do several things. Number one, it will cause us to speak truth when it's more comfortable not to. It will cause us to speak truth when it's more comfortable, that is, it would be more self-serving not to. It'll cause us to care more about the brother or sister who needs to hear it than our own good, our own comfort. Whether that would be a word of encouragement, comfort, a promise of the Lord from his word for the situation, uh, sometimes a correction if there is something that needs to be corrected, a rebuke even sometimes, but in love. We won't be, and that's that, at least the second point is, not only will we speak when it would be more comfortable not to, but love will also affect the way we speak when we do. Love will affect the way we speak when we do. We won't be harsh, we'll be gentle. We won't be simply pointing our fingers at a sin, but we'll be putting our arm around the sinner and helping to lead them back to the way of truth. We'll commit to pray with that person in their struggle and seek other help if that need be, if that person needs a counselor that is more knowledgeable than you, a biblical counselor that is more knowledgeable than you, will be able to bring them to the truth. Speaking the truth in love. It was how Christ spoke and it is how we are to speak. Christ is the, full of one, is the one who is full of grace and truth, remember. Grace and truth. John 1.14. These two things together reflect that image. Remember 16 reminds us that it is Christ who is the source of all growth. Yet again, we minister by speaking truth in love, but even as we minister, he is the one giving the growth, maturing his people. He is the head. He is the one that needs to be continued to point back to. Don't look at me, the arm. Don't look at the toe. Don't look at the shoulder. You're not following me, ultimately. Look to the head. He's the one from whom growth will come. That nourishes the body. He's the one who, in his wisdom, equipped the body with every joint that holds it together, like we read in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the work of ministry is our work. It's ours. We need to own it. Every saint is to be a minister of the gospel of Christ, a minister of the truth as we find it in Jesus. And as the elders, the pastor teachers of FBC, this passage makes clear to us that it is our duty to equip this body for the work of ministry. This is one reason why in our strategic ministry plan, remember that? We haven't done a very good job of holding this before you, but uh, if you do not have one of these, find me and I'll get you one of these. But this is something that, that a few years ago, as a congregation, we put together as goals in ministry. And you'll find, as you go through this, it all reflects speaking the truth in love. But I want to point your attention to a couple of things under the section Discipleship and Member Care. One reason we have these two items. One of the goals we have is to develop discipleship training, formal and informal. Develop discipleship training, formal and informal. That is, we want to train people to follow Jesus Christ faithfully and help others do the same. That's what it means, in essence, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's why we have training for leaders and participants in ministries because we are not to do all of the ministry work ourselves. 
Tim and I, Tim and Kurt and I, and those who have served as elders in the past, and the deacons. It's not just for us to do. It's part of our ministry to raise up those who will be leaders after us and alongside us. So both of those goals stem from passages like this, where we see that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. As elders, we have been praying for a number of months through these things and doing a lot of thinking on how we can better equip you for the work of ministry. And we continue to pray for that. How we can equip you, the men and the women of Fellowship Bibles Church, for the work of ministry. And in the coming, of, coming weeks, it's a matter of weeks, we will be presenting some plans to you how we can better equip you, how we can better obey and follow this model here at Fellowship Bible Church. And so one way that I would love for you to apply this passage this morning is to pray it over the course of this next week and weeks for us, for this church. Pray through it. Ask, and as you pray, ask yourself these questions. How am I engaged right now in the work of ministry? Am I? And if not, why not? And how could I be? How has God gifted me to help others? And you may need to, you probably will need to talk to others about that too because others will probably see how you're gifted possibly better than you will. Am I a student of God's word? Do I know the truth to speak in love? Am I speaking the truth to others in love as I have opportunity? And how can I grow to do this more faithfully? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the marvelous calling that we have each received by grace through faith to belong to Jesus Christ forever. That we were chosen before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in your sight. And that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand in advance that we should do them. Thank you for giving us, Jesus, grace to serve your body, each of us. Thank you for giving leaders to your church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And may we be faithful to do that. May we not necessarily do what is easier for the moment and neglect to equip others. Convict us as elders that the work of ministry is not just our work in a limited sense, but it, that it is, it is ours as a body. Mature us, Jesus, in the unity of the faith. May we be students of your word, those who love to know your word. Unite us in the knowledge of you, of yourself. Keep us from the deceitful schemes and false teachings that pervade our world and our culture. May we learn and practice and grow in speaking the truth to one another in love so that each part will be working properly as you've designed it. Thank you that in all of this, Jesus, your promise is that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a joy. What a privilege to be called of you and to join you in that work for the glory of your name. Amen.